This is A Drink with a Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Seth Haynes. <laughs> that is <laughs> unsurprising, uh, except very surprising. <laughs> mm, yes, I was trying to pull a little John Ralphio. You remember John Ralphio? Mm-mm. From Parks and Rec fame. Oh, oh yes. And, yeah, and he had the sister, and he <laughs> said, she's literally the worst. It was that that whole, yeah. So that's the that's my mood. That's, that's my current mood today. You also got a haircut, didn't you? I did get a haircut. Thank you for noticing. Well the done. only people that really notice are you and a guy in my gym <laughs> and uh, one of Isaac's friends, oddly. That so is a random assortment of people, and the listeners probably is. don't care at all because they can't even see your head, so... Well, imagine me with shorter hair. Yeah, and that's what you look like. So uh, that's exactly what I look like. Seth, what is in your mug right there that you are holding? I am drinking a warm and delicious <laughs> mug of black coffee, brewed <laughs> from the finest grounds, delivered by <laughs> Keurig. Ah, uh, yeah. So work mm, coffee. It's awful. Really? What am I gonna do? Yeah. What are you gonna do? I do it. You can't do anything. Right. You just drink it. And shut up, man. <laughs> what are you drinking today? I'm drinking sparky water from H-E-B, black cherry. I've had enough coffee for the day, sadly. Um, my first interview this morning was at the crack of dawn. It was a radio show. And so I was just chugging coffee early because, and it not only was, no, I'm sorry. It wasn't a radio show. That was my second one. The first one was one of those peppy morning shows. And they Ugh. Skyped me in. And so I had to look really peppy and have my hair looking the right way. <laughs> and so oh my gosh. it was just you know, quite pe- a day. Peppy morning shows are the worst. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, where's yeah. the morning show that with like the dude that rolls in like with his unkempt hair and a, you know, <laughs> overnight beard being like, y'all, none of us want to be here, but let's roll. Let's do this anyway. Like, I would watch that show. I'm clearly not the target audience for the show because I just don't like that kind of like I don't want to be talked to that much that early in the morning anyway. But my son, Reed, actually dared me to show up like that, like, you know, let them be all peppy with their bright primary colored set. And then when they cut to me on Skype, you know, just look like I've rolled out of bed. It's still dark in here. I almost did. I think you should have. I am a firm believer uh, in the idea of no primary colors before 10. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of a fan of that idea, too. The school that we go to, the, the walls are kind of brightly colored, and the high schoolers hate that for that reason. They say it's way too early to be staring at bright yellow, and I kind of agree. So Yeah, I agree. So if you're a primary color before <laughs> 10 type of person, I need you to leave us a comment and tell us why you think that's good for your brain. <laughs> justify your your bad take there. I I need you to justify yourself. <laughs> okay. So, um, in case people can't already tell, we were talking about what topic we should talk about. And we got to talking about how, yes, we're podcast hosts, but actually we're more people than podcast hosts. Uh, we are just people and friends and, and people with lives. And so we thought, let's do a potpourri show where we just talk about what's on our mind, a few things each, um, like you do when you're just chatting with a friend. As one does. So what's on your mind? Well, you know, so I guess I kind of, I'm thinking in, in buckets of threes, Mm -hmm. right? Three things sort of on my mind. I hope there are three things on your mind so we can play a little match up. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of reading, as are you, yeah. as is probably my guess is 99.2% of the people who listen to this podcast. The other 0.8% are the people who like primary colors before 10. Right. But I've been uh, reading Station Eleven because I hadn't read it and a bunch of people were like, you should go watch the show. And I'm like, well, I've had this book for a long time and I haven't read it. Um, so I'm not going to watch the show before I read the book. So I read uh, Station Eleven. I just finished it this morning. Actually, I woke up, couldn't sleep at 4.10. So I was super awake this morning and finished Station Eleven. Um, there's this part in Station Eleven. So to give you some background in case you haven't read it, it's generally about the collapse of society under the weight of a pandemic flu called the Georgian flu. So it's a little bit different than what we're currently living in but it is very germane to the times yeah um and in that collapse of society obviously um people go on these journeys and do these certain things and have to survive in a post-apocalyptic world and it's sort of about the connection of all things in that sort of environment or milieu Mm -hmm. um and and it's it's really about the connection of relationships but there's a part in the book um pre-collapse yeah. Where this this guy is kind of going about his everyday life and he's a a business coach maybe. Um and he does these 360 evaluations and he goes into um an executive office and he's you know going to talk to a woman about her boss because he's doing this sort of evaluation of her boss. Her boss has hired him to do this like coaching evaluation. And and she says essentially, do you think he'll change? And, you know, the guy that this character says, well, you know, sometimes people change behaviors. And she's like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Do you think he'll actually change? Like he'll adapt Mm -hmm. some sort of a change. And then she goes on to say, what I find is that most of the time I've ever been involved in things like this, people can kind of change a behavior or two. They can kind of sort of get along better. But most people don't because most people are just miserable. They're not living fully awake. Um, they're miserable. And so they go and they do something like overwork or overdrink or overdrug or over whatever, right? They, they numb the pain of life, um, by doing something else and, and they're not fully awake. Mm-hmm. And he sort of listens to this like sort of philosophical rant by this woman. And just before he had gone in, he sort of sees these, I think they're, they're even titled millennials, like on their phones, like scrolling and they bump into him on the streets and he's frustrated and he's like, they're going too slow and they're bumping into me because they're all glued to their phones and yada, yada, yada. And then he's having this conversation. He has this conversation about being awake and he, it dawns on him that he had so many things he wanted to do in his life. You know, he wanted to be an actor. He wanted to do all these other things. Um, but he sort of settled into this this rut of this job, and he starts to ask himself, am I really awake? And then there's this stunning, like, sort of conclusion. That would have been enough for me. Mm-hmm. I, I would have loved that section of the book. But then he has this stunning conclusion, uh, concluding thought, which is, I wish I could go out and find those millennials on their cell phones and apologize them to them for being so judgmental. And it was just this very human moment that got me to stop and say, okay, like I've written a book about, you know, waking up. It's called The Book of Waking Up. It's about waking up to your addictions. It's about exactly what this woman was talking about, right? Um, The things that numb you to life. 
and I think there are times too when I've been like, oh, why is everybody on their cell phones all the time? Like a crotchety old man. And there have been times when I've been addicted to my own cell phone uh, for, for too, for too long. Um, and I think it was that moment where I just stopped that book made me stop and think, okay, wait a second. Am I really awake or am I just sort of moving through, um, this sort of, you know, what could be a pre pandemic reality sort of numb to, uh, the vices of the world because, you know, her, you know, St. John Mantell's whole premise is that before the world collapses, we're sort of in this state of like walking numbness to like just all the little things like we take for granted. Right. Yeah. And so I kind of stopped and asked myself, like, am I, am I simply just taking things for granted hmm. in the world around me? Um, and am I numbing myself to things? And I, I don't know. It was just, a, it was one of those moments where it made me stop. I'm actually thinking about writing about it um, hmm. for my, for my Substack newsletter, because it was such a hidden gem in this little book that I just, I, I really, it got me thinking. Did it bring back any, uh, you know, because it's been a few years since I've read the book, how it goes back and forth in time, like pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, post-pandemic, right? Kind of, sort of. Yes. Um, yeah, right. It's not cleanly cut, but it, it sort of is. Um, did it yeah. bring back any, like, close to home feelings about when our pandemic started? Because I read this way before COVID. Um, I don't know. Like, what you're saying right now conjures up to me feelings I had at the beginning of the pandemic that I have already kind of grown numb to and now feel a bit convicted by what you just said. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think what it did, I, I don't, I don't know that I had, well, I don't remember having that particular thought. What I did think was, you know, if I had read Station Eleven when it came out, however many years ago, I would have probably discounted it as sorry writer sorry author i would have discounted it as mm. a really bad version of the road mm. by cormac mccarthy mm -hmm. which was a book that i just absolutely loved sure um but i think now having lived through an actual pandemic that could I mean, there's no reason it didn't turn out the exact same way as her book right i think it made me stop and think okay like that is a potential reality as much as I don't want to face it, as much as none of us would really want to face it. It's a potential reality. Um, and there is a, a world in which I exist that could go away overnight. Yeah. And we got close to that to some degree. We lost parts of it mm -hmm. in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, I need to wake up and not take that stuff for granted anymore. Mm, so cool. I, I actually, <laughs> oddly feel like having gone through a pandemic may maybe if i'm talking about apocalyptic post-apocalyptic novels it sort of puts station 11 actually ahead of the road yeah wow yeah which was like my favorite post-apocalyptic you know dystopian mm. travel story mm -hmm. until this one yeah it's really well done i was impressed with how she managed to keep the story threads pulled and and the pacing was really well done. I was, it, you know, there were mm -hmm. moments where I thought it was a little bit slow, but then she picked it up at just the right time. It's, it's good yeah. storytelling. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And there's a, there's a moment and I'll just say this for the mm -hmm. listeners benefit. There's a moment when she really could have drawn it out and like created some large, you know, I don't know, showdown at the okay corral. Right. Um, and, 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 she didn't. She mm -hmm. resisted that temptation and it was so the right move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So the right move. So yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway, it's a very, very, very good book. Very uh, intrigued by it. I think everyone should pick it up and key on that section about waking up, which, by the way, ends up being a theme later in the book. I, I remember when I read it thinking, that's a weird thing to stick in the middle, but man, does that hit me. Mm-hmm. And then later on, you start to see, oh, those two pages were actually critical to the entire theme of the book. That's, so very yeah. well done. Hats off to her. Yeah. Um, everybody should get a copy of it. Did you finish the book? Yeah, I finished it this morning. It's okay. amazing. Very cool. I love it. That's why yep. it's on your mind. Yeah, that's right. So what's on your mind, Tish? Well, um, maybe not quite as philosophical, but you know what? It actually is. Um, you know that that well-known cliche about good fences making good neighbors? Um, I do. So the, the idea behind that is boundaries, right? You know, that you are healthy in relationships and in your community when you have clearly delineated lines of what's yours and what's mine. And that is true. But I've been thinking about the good fences make good neighbors concept this past week because of our literal backyard fence, which Mm. um, no shame at all to Kyle. His hands are very, very full with a bajillion tasks on our little fixer upper, but um, it's a piece of crap. We've had it since we moved in uh, five plus years ago and we haven't fixed it. And it's literally one of these backyard fences where each side is made from a different material source. That's Uh, awesome. Because we live in a very old neighborhood and it's kind of a a janky hodgepodge neighborhood, which I love. We have no HOA. Perfect for us. Um, The fence on the left side of our neighbor is a stone wall that's about three feet tall. The one along the back is a mix of materials, which I'll get to in a second. And the one on the right that I'm looking at right now is just sort of like hog wire fence with our neighbor's um, long wall of mulched leaves. (laughs) So it's, it's one of these places. So I guess what I'm thinking about is how these fences actually make for good neighbors, but in different ways. So to take the stone wall as an example, I've talked about this before, but our neighbor on the other side, his name is Evan. He is a PhD student in philosophy. He also is now a TA, I think, but he also works at the farm in the area, Mm. um, you know, to make ends meet. He lives in the back apartment of this property. It's such a weird property. I won't get into the details, but um, he's a fantastic neighbor. I would argue probably the best we've ever had. He's a great guy. Kyle goes over there to, you know, grab a beer with him sometimes. We just chat over the fence, the the stone wall here and there. Um, and he leaves plants on the wall when he comes back from his work at the farm, if they've just got a surplus, cause he knows I like to garden. And so yeah. he'll leave stuff on the wall. Um, I made some lemon curd. I had Kyle put that on the wall for him. We'll give him some of our eggs. And there's just something really cool about the stone wall that makes almost like a bar sort of like that we can sidle up to, to know this guy well and be good neighbors with him. Um, and it's kind of just this old school, I don't even know what you call it. Just like this place that is assumed we exchange our goods at. Um, and I really love it. And then it's your, it's your bartering wall. Yeah. It's our bartering wall. And it's just a, and there's not like a IOU, you owe me thing at all. It's just more of a, like, you know, when we've got something and we want to share it, we just will. Um, yeah. you know, a few weeks ago he had to put his cat to sleep. And so I made him soup and just left it there. And, 
he took it. And I just, I don't know. There's just something really endearing about this. I feel like I'm going to add this in a story at some point, you know, years from now. Um, The other wall use part of the back wall used to uh, be where our former shed was. So Kyle just built a new shed. And this is interesting because we have no storage. This is an old house. And so this serves as our like garage slash storage. But there used to be a little shed on our property that was super old. And we have kept Mm. it this whole time because of dumb zoning laws where Mm. if you knock it down, then easements, blah, blah, blah. Boring stuff. But the literal back wall of the shed was the fence part of the fence of this <laughs> of uh oh, wow. our property yeah it was that's how old this is so kyle finally knocked it down this past week which meant we had just this gaping hole of a nothing fence looking between us and our neighbor and um i don't know it was just kind of an interesting experience you know how like whenever uh something you don't even notice anymore suddenly changes and it looks completely different mm-hmm. um we don't know these neighbors back there at all. They're in fact, I think barely there, but we quickly, or, you know, we're in the process of building a fence there so that we have something to delineate ourselves from them. And um, there's just something, I don't want to say sacramental, but kind of sort of about respecting their property by us building this fence to recognize that that's yours. And we acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, I've been sort of poetically thinking about that as well. And then the last thing is this wall over here with this hog wire fence and our neighbor, she is a lovely woman as well. She's a single mom with four dogs that love to bark, especially at Kyle whenever he's outside. Um, But especially bark at Jenny, and they can see each other. And part of me is driven crazy by this because dogs barking for no reason they have two two of the four bark like it's a hobby not like they're warning you know her about an intruder i know know this kind of dog (laughs) right and it makes especially kyle crazy um but also it's really comical honestly to have Jenny run out there and they just bark at each other like they're discussing politics and getting mad at each other but their tails are wagging so they're actually friends And they're like muzzles are right up next to each other, but they're only doing this because there's a fence in between them. Like if they, if the fence was down, they would like Jenny and this other dog that she likes to bark at would probably be such babies and be scared to death of each other. And, you know, I don't know, run away, but they're acting all like who they are because of this fence, but their tails are wagging. And it's just something about this idea of, um, boundaries that i'm watching this lesson played out through these dogs barking but in their own space and then they go back with their tails wagging even though they argued um as friends and so yeah there's just something poetic about that side of the fence too so yeah so so if you were going to ascribe uh one or two word meaning to each of the walls what would it be <laughs> um well i mean boundaries is way too obvious so i'm not gonna do that no each wall you have to do each wall separately oh 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 okay got it um okay the stone wall is gonna be camaraderie or mm. kinship yeah camaraderie because um we recognize each other's needs and we meet them when we can uh the back wall uh respect i'm trying to think of a better 
more interesting word, like whatever's in the thesaurus for respect um, of what's mine and what's theirs. Over here, it's going to look like if I can uh, if I can use a phrase more is just arguing well. You know, we talked about this on a previous yeah. episode, quarreling versus arguing. And we've been talking about this in one of my classes, actually, that we're, we're talking about logical fallacies. And um, there is a difference, you know, that the root word of quarrel is to complain and the root word of argue is to prove. And um, so these dogs are being ridiculous. I think they're trying to prove their dogginess to each other. But tails wagging, they're, they're not doing it because they hate each other. So, yeah, yeah. arguing well. That's I think that's fascinating. I think you should write uh, an essay called The Meaning of Walls. I might just do that. I mean, I don't know. I, I hadn't even thought about it, but now that we're talking and now that you said that you might write what you're thinking about from your Station Eleven, maybe I will. Yeah. There you go. All right. What else is on your mind? Well, Doomsday is on my mind. <laughs> well, so far, two for two. Okay. Two for two. Yeah. So <laughs> I think a lot of this comes from Station Eleven, too. But just, you know, I've... I, we, you know, we both live in uh, evangelical contexts and states that are, you know, sort of Bible Belt states. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a end times, you know, eschatological speaking church. Yep. And they wanted to talk about revelation and, you know, whatever, yada, 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 mm-hmm. uh, Jeremiah and so forth and so on and whatever. Um, and I think, you know, that still sort of fills the bucket of Northwest Arkansas, culturally speaking. I mean, there's still a lot of people who are talking eschatologically about the end times. And, um, and sometimes that is simple. That's as simple as, you know, the local Baptist church who's doing it in a very sort of gentle way and, you Mm -hmm. know, just talking about revelation theology or whatever. And then sometimes it's in very much more aggressive ways. There used to be a preacher who would come and stand, on the fountain in uh, at the U of A, and he would uh, stand in his white suit with his Bible and yell at people about the coming doomsday and the day of the Lord and all of this sort of thing. And I've recently been listening to a lot of uh, doomsday sort of theology. Hmm. For whatever reason, don't need to go into it, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And it strikes me uh, that, you know, John, the revelator, as it were, in the Bible, who was an actual factual apostle, by the way, yeah, talked a lot about dooms- doomsday. In fact, he wrote a whole book about it. That's quite true. And he was convinced that he was living in the end times. He was convinced. <laughs> and he was an apostle. And yeah. evidently, he was incorrect about that. I mean, at least in a literal sense the world did not end in his lifetime right the Mm -hmm. the world did not end in the lifetime of his you know kids 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 um and so it's just fascinating to me to think about end times and what does that mean and how do we think about doomsday and the end of times and the end of the world and all these things and i recently finished a book by ray dalio yeah um, and it's a great great book i think we've talked about it you talked about it principles for yeah, it's called Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order. Hmm. And what Dalio says in his book, which is so fascinating, is that, you know, empires rise and fall. They come and they go. Uh, they, they build to a zenith. They get in deep, deep debt. 
they fall apart because they have gotten in deep, deep debt and they start printing money, which causes runaway inflation, which causes uh, people to thirst for uh, deflationary uh, pressures, which means power grabs and loss of identities and all of these things. Hmm. And as a result of that, empires collapse, which is what they do. Yeah. And when they do, another empire rises. You know, the Roman Empire collapsed. Uh, the Dutch collapsed. The Spanish collapsed. The English collapsed. China's empires have risen and fallen over and over again. Japan, Germany. I mean, we could go through all of them, right? Empires come and go. They rise and they collapse. And in the moment of collapse, every empire thinks that it is somehow special. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this must be the end of the world because my empire is struggling or my empire is falling apart or it has never been this dark before. And then then all the history of man because my empire is struggling or because there's a pandemic. Um, And I was listening. This is going to be a really funny tie-in. I was listening to a Lewis Black rant. Do you know who Lewis Black is? Yes, I do. Yeah. The old comedian. Yeah. And he was talking about, he was reading his, it was his rant about, millennials which i listen no shot at millennials because i'm almost one i think it's hilarious i think his his take was hilarious but but the millennial in the email to him was saying like this is we're, we're the most messed screwed generation of all time ever and he's like oh really as screwed as the ones who lived through the plague and the spanish flu and mm-hmm. world war one and world war ii and it dawned on me every one of those generations would have thought this is the day of the Lord. This is doomsday. This is the end of all things. Um, just like in Dalio's book, every people group in every empire that's collapsing would have thought the same thing. This is the end of the world. This is doomsday. And it struck me that really what's happening is we are all dealing with our self-inflated egos. Hmm. That that doomsday thought and theology and thinking and all of that thing really just is an attempt to put ourselves at the center of a mystery that we cannot know and we will not know. Hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, for those of you who are Bible inspired, who, you know, the model himself said, I don't know the day or the hour. It's not for me to know. Right. So it's fascinating to me uh, to begin thinking through doomsday rhetoric, whether it is religious doomsday rhetoric, whether it's Ray Dalio's, you know, empire doomsday rhetoric, um, whatever the thing is, man, there have been doomsdays after doomsdays after doomsdays, and yet we still exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that means for us, I think, is that it's really important that we do not lose sight and fall asleep thinking too much about the end of the world. Hmm. And that instead we go to the rock fence and exchange soup with each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. And, you know, I, I'm i sure some listeners are thinking, yeah, I roll my eyes at all that too. But how much of, like, do you maybe do, like, lowercase doomsdaying? You know, like, if you listen to a particular brand of news that just really um, hits home climate change or maybe on the other side or the decline of traditional culture or some form of, you know, doomsday um, we humans are really prone to focusing on that stuff, which, I mean, there might be some merit to, for sure, but um, it sounds pretty clear that Christ didn't want us focusing on that as much as lots of other things, and yet, gosh, it's interesting how we are so prone to that. Yeah, and I, I think it gives us a sense of agency over doomsday, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like if if I am in the end times church, or you know, economically speaking, if I am in the the failing empire, whichever one you want to pick, mm-hmm. then the question turns from you know just the the utter plight of humanity to oh, what can I do to fix this? And the truth is, man, like you're probably not going to fix it. Like if you're in a declining empire, you're probably not going to fix it. If you're living through the literal doomsday, you're probably not going to fix it. What you can do is use the best of your power and your ability and your agency to create something more beautiful where you are and to create a, a, a more loving environment where you are and a more beautiful world where you are and a more spiritual context where you are. I mean, you can do that for sure. Um, but the thought of wringing one's hands and making end times preparation, um, it's super fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, it, because it just, it, I mean, listen, we've been around for a really long time and every time people start saying stuff like that, like either doomsday never comes or the empire never collapses or yeah. the empire collapses anyway. And everybody's, you know, at a loss with why didn't I was, why wasn't I able to fix it? Yeah. It's interesting. You know, a lot of modern talkers now focusing on the decline of our culture it it does tend to swing one way or another of like we can't possibly fall we're too great a country or we're too great a culture or you know it's all going to pot and probably the answer is a little bit of both um but if you start reading old stuff like i've really been deep diving into just old stuff the past few years it's interesting how very little is new under the sun when it comes to this sort of talk, you know? Very little. Yeah. Very little. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, and guess what? The the prophets that were proclaiming the end of the world in the 1800s, they were wrong. Yeah, that's true. Because I'm alive. Very true. <laughs> My birth indicates that they were false. Do you remember <laughs> you know? Do you remember seeing, like, 88 reasons why the world's going to end in 1988? Like, these little pamphlets? Yes. I remember those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and we've been seeing those forever. You right. know, I'm sure there. If you looked, I'm sure there's, you know, 2016 reasons why the world will end. 2016, <laughs> yeah. you know, or whatever. I'm sure. But do you remember a few years ago about the blood moons? Remember all mm-hmm. the blood moons? That's stuff? right. Yeah. And we were all gonna perish in a rain of fire and mm-hmm. something about maybe a rapture or maybe not, maybe the devil. <laughs> I don't right. remember. Yeah. I think there's something also about like we humans are just really uncomfortable with mystery, you know, and and there's a sacramentality to just leaning into the unknown and being okay with that, that we just want to explain away everything, especially post enlightenment. But I think even back then, you know, St. John's time, we really wanted to hang our hat on some sort of thing so that we felt like we were figuring stuff out. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Interesting. All right. Well, what uh, outside of doomsday, what are you thinking about? (laughs) Um, I've been thinking about the poetry of John Keats. Do you know much about that guy? Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So. Why have you been thinking about John Keats? Because I am teaching, um, a group of thrilled 16 to 18 year olds who just are over the moon excited about studying British romantic poetry. Um, Mm. in particular, we talked about John Keats yesterday in my class. And so it was just on my mind. And I was one of those nerdy, getting excited teachers who were, you know, helping them unpack the wonder of Ode on a Grecian Urn. And, Mm. and I'm sure they were kind of looking at me like, she's gone crazy, but that's okay. I don't Mm. mind. Um, 
I won't bore our listeners with just a long lecture about John Keats, but I will say, I think we forget. And when I say we, I mean me, uh, that this guy, you know, so for the listeners who are unaware, romantic poetry, we're talking like capital R, like this writing style and the movement, the, the, the way of thinking, not so much like romance novels, lowercase r. Um, there are six main British poets who are spearheaded. There's like a group one and group two and Keats was part of group two along with Shelley and Byron um, as like some of the greats, like one of the few greats of romantic poetry. But he is in that category among many artists that were unknown until his death, till after he had died. Mm -hmm. He, in fact, um, asked that on his tombstone it be written, he here lies a man whose name was writ in water because he was so sure that mm. he was going to be completely forgotten about and that his like anything he did was all for naught. Well, here's the thing. Like that, Hopkins. When we yes. talked about Hopkins a couple weeks ago. That's right. Yeah. Same thing. Um, what really blows my mind is that he died at 25 years old. So everything he wrote, all of these poems, he wrote as a teen mostly. A teen and early 20s. And so when you read it through those eyes, and he had a really rough life. You know, this is a guy who's um, has who is one of three boys. So four four brothers. Um, he was the only one left. Uh, one of them moved to America. The other two died. His parents both died um, when he mm. was 15. He just had a rough life. And then he died from the same thing his mom and one of his brothers died from uh, consumption, which is tuberculosis. Mm. Um, but anyway... He was just a phenomenal guy who did horribly in school. He was a he bullied other people. He was a class clown. He ended up going to school to become a doctor, so like med school, but he hated it. He was just doing it because he thought, like, here's a job I could do. Um, and he wrote poetry all the time and never studied. Yeah. He was in love with his next door neighbor, but and they got engaged, but he could never fully marry her because he never made enough money. And that was important at the time. And so he just kind of had a crappy life. And yet in the nooks and crannies of, he, of his life, he wrote some of the greatest poetry we have in the English language and mm. invented entirely new genres. You know, there is such a thing as a Keatsian ode and taking cues from Shakespeare when he wrote an iambic pentameter, but also in this romantic way where he had these rhyme schemes that followed along and then suddenly he detoured to a different kind of non-rhyming scheme and then back back to it. And just nobody had ever seen that before. And so that's why he was largely criticized when he was alive. Nobody really took any of his stuff seriously. And it wasn't until after the fact that they noticed what great work he did. And the topics of all of his poems or just about all of them, it's just classic teenage boy stuff. And I don't think I really saw it through that lens until I really realized how old he was during some of this poetry, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. That's what I hear you saying. And like, just what is the point of life? Nobody loves me. Um, you know, just moody, broody stuff, you know, kind of like Hamlet and how he's just like, what's the point? Why should I keep going on? But yeah, a lot of like, I love this girl. She turns me on. I can't do anything about it. Woe is me life sucks. You know, we read the poem to sleep in class and he's basically, he's writing a sonnet about how he can't freaking go to sleep because his brain won't shut off. Um, yeah. And he's, he's analogizing it to death. And it just to me, I read it and I just think, oh my gosh, you sound like my 17 year old daughter. And like so many of my students who just 
you know, everything in life is the biggest deal at this age. And so I don't know, to me, I guess I've just really appreciated John Keats' humanity in the midst of his sheer genius that we so often overlook because we kind of just put all these great thinkers and poets and artists on pedestals. And I just always love learning about regular lives that do great work like this. Well, it would make sense to write that poem too, right? If he didn't have enough money to marry the woman that he loved. And um, yeah. yeah, that's that's really cool. That's that's kind of amazing. So do you study, when you study these people, are you studying their contemporaries too? Like, are you studying Blake, for instance? We do get into that. We are actually going to study more of the romantics. We're, I mean, like when it comes to my work as a teacher, yes, because we're, we're like I, I tend to teach literature chronologically. So it only makes sense that I would then hit up Blake and, you know, uh, Byron and all these guys. And then we're going to move into, we're going to talk about Hopkins. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but I also just kind of go where I want because yeah. Uh, yeah. one thing that I find really helpful with teenagers is reminding them that they do like poetry, even though they don't realize it. And it's called music. And, yeah. you know, so we talked about the Super Bowl halftime show as well, you know, and, and Dr. so good. And Dr. Dre, wasn't it so good? It was so, it was the best one that I've seen since yeah. you two performed, whatever yeah. that was years yeah. ago. It was fantastic. And so we talked about that and how Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, you know, they might not be Keats, but man, they're poets. And what does that mean? Totally. You know? Yeah, totally. hundred anyway, percent. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you've, I don't, I'm not thinking about this, although it transitions into my next topic fairly well, but have you ever looked at um, Blake's paintings? His art? Maybe, but maybe without knowing it. I'll look it up right now. Oh, man. You should look up. Everybody should look up William Blake's um, <laughs> art. I okay. mean, it's, it's truly, like, amazing stuff. And it is perfect for, one, pairing with poetry from the Romantic period. Huh. But also, it's perfect for Lent. It's Lenty stuff. It's kind of, Yeah, it's wild. It's sort of a... Very wild. Ethereal... Grotesque, it's very much like his poetry yeah 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 yeah. this is cool weird so huh. anyway right. enjoy that i will enjoy I that. will. thank you for that okay so what's what's the third thing on your mind right now death no i'm just kidding <laughs> I, it's not it's not that bad uh-huh. but it's kind of close okay. um lent lent mm. no art during lent yeah. and this is going to kind of move into my beauty uh what's a beautiful thing so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i'm just going to go ahead and go now yeah that's fine um so IVP, InterVarsity Press, yeah. sent me a book by Sister Wendy Beckett called The Art of Lent, hmm. a painting a day from Ash Wednesday to Easter. I might have that. Is it new? It's new. Oh, maybe I don't. And it is a phenomenal. Really? And there is a companion book called The Art of Holy Week and Easter, huh. which they have also sent me. And um, I will tell you this. I, I haven't really like... I have not I haven't like gone all in yet, but it is a I've I've read just kind of flipped through and read some of them and looked at the art. It is essentially a reflection a day mm-hmm. paired with a painting. I have this book. And yep. It's so good. It is really good. Yeah. It's so good. So yeah. So I am um I'm 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 reading through it. I intend to to read through it in earnest during Lent and to add some beauty to my Lent because you know, in Lent you sort of start with getting ashes smeared all over your forehead. So that's a dark thing to do. So I just want to kind of uh, mm-hmm. include some beauty in it. So one of the things I'm doing for Lent is including beauty. And one of the things, one of the ways I'm including beauty is to include um, 
this book. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. That's fantastic. I love it. I love it. That's yeah, really I'm good. I'm excited about it. You know, what's funny is right before we were recording, I updated my, you know, so my Lent book, Bitter and Sweet, has art, weekly art and daily music. Um, I updated it to include links to all that art for people to just oh. click on. And so I was looking through a, not not necessarily her book, but I remember getting it for research when I was like mm-hmm. searching for um, art. And I was reminded of what cool artists there have been throughout the years. And, you know, not so much specifically depicting Lint, but Lint adjacent topics. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. That's cool. Yeah. I like totally. it. Totally. So, like so what does that bring you to your third <laughs> and final thing you're thinking about? Um, it's funny you say that because we are going to be talking about Lent more in the next few episodes in a more practical, like, real way. But um, if I could just have some real talk here, which you've already heard me say, um, this was today was like the 247th, I don't even know, interview I've done for Lent and it's not even Lent yet. And I'm exaggerating, of course. And I also completely recognize the privilege of getting to talk about my book in various outlets, but it has just left me really road weary and Mm. it's interesting to be tired of the idea of Lent before Lent has even happened. And so um, you know, I asked Kyle if there's such a thing as fasting from Lent, and um, <laughs> I'm not going to because I'm actually, I am, you know, because Lent's so often on my mind right now, I am eager to to practice it this year, but um, I don't know. There's just something interesting about being on so many podcasts or radio shows or whatever. 95% of them I haven't heard of, not because they're bad, but because there's just so many. That yeah. has made me really appreciate silence. I have not yeah. had a lot of silence in my life right now because whenever I normally have silence, I'm doing an interview um, again, mm. which I'm very grateful for. But um, I've just like there's typically moments whenever I like to listen to an audiobook or a playlist when I'm doing certain things like working in the garden or walking Ginny. And lately I've just been listening to nothing and it's been really nice. And I guess that's kind of what's just on my mind, how we so often, we humans feel like because we can, because we've got Bluetooth and phones that have libraries and, and, you know, dance halls in our pockets that we should listen Mm. to something all the time. And maybe we just shouldn't, maybe we should just listen to wind and, and leaves and that's enough. And I think that's kind of what I need more of in my life right now. So I think we probably all need more of that in our lives right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel every every nook and cranny seems to be filled with noise. And most of the time, it's productive noise. It's not like it's uh, even distracting noise. But right. you can just, yeah. you know, on the way home from work, you got to make a phone call. Or when you walk in, you got to talk about the day or, when, uh, you know, whatever the thing is. And so, yeah. yeah, I agree. Or when you walk in the coffee shop, the music's, <laughs> right. you know, just pumping or whatever. Yeah. Um, or crooning as the case may be i think you're right i think we need more space for uh the wind yeah yeah so you know take that what you will listener whatever that means that's just what's been on my mind and since you already mentioned the thing that's adding more beauty to your life right now i will just compare that with i mean ironically i guess since i just talked about turning things off is um, (laughs) there is a youtube channel that i really like but it, it it dovetails fairly well because there is it's a very calming 
YouTube channel. It's called Exploring Alternatives. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Oh, I um, don't know that I have. All right. It's a YouTube channel that just showcases how different people live in unusual ways. So you've got tiny houses. You've got people who live on boats. You've got people who live in vans. Um, I've seen this. I love this channel. I do too. I do too. And, you know, I, I look at it not so much for escapism and not so much for like inspiration, like I'm going to do this, but just more like, um, I don't want to say amusement, but amusement with a sense of um, admiration. So I'm watching it more just yeah. because I like how these people have chosen to do things, not so much that they make me feel guilty that I live differently, but there's just some really cool ideas out there, like living off grid, floating on this self-built island, or um, turning an ambulance into a camper van, Uh you know, just really cool stuff. So people are smart and creative, and I like seeing it. So that's a good channel. They're smart, and they're creative, and they're super eccentric on that channel, <laughs> which, yeah. man, if there's one thing that I love, it is super eccentric people. I do, too. And that's what this – I mean, you know, we it it's highlighting the beauty of really unconventionality, and I'm all for that. You know, this is not the the real housewives of anything. It's a very <laughs> – it's just very weird, and I don't know. I look at some of this, and I think I can never do that. Some, I think, sign me up. I want to live in your house yesterday. Um, so I don't know. There's just lots out there, and it's really cool. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. I dig it. Yeah. I love it. I yeah, love yeah, the yeah. channel. I'm going to go watch it this afternoon, in fact. There you go. There you go. Okay, well, I'll put all these things in the show notes. Um, one last thing before we go, because we do need to wrap up, is at the time of this recording – uh, our friend of the show, Haley Stewart, and I are going to be at a local bookshop next week. So if you're in Central Texas. Oh, that's fun. I know. So if you're in Central Texas, join us Thursday, February 24th at 7 p.m. We're going to be at Fabled in Waco. It's our mutually favorite uh, indie bookshop. They're really fun people. It's great. Um, we're just going to be chatting about Lent and Ash Wednesday and the liturgical calendar and whatever else is on your mind. And we're going to try and record the chat for those of you outside of Central Texas. But if you are in the area, please come. That would be really fun. So very casual, very chill. Hang out. We'll sign books if you feel like it, but no pressure if you don't want us to. Um, yeah. Would you tell Haley I said hello? <laughs> I will happily tell her hello. I'm Would excited. Would you tell Haley that all of the listeners say hello also? I will. Yeah, there's a nice That'd crossover between fans of her and those who listen to the show so well she's been on the show and she was an amazing guest it was a lot of fun to have her as a friend indeed she is great so yeah if you want to hear her be really smart talk about cool things you should come it'd be fun all right well it is time to wrap it up officially you can find this episode like all episodes at a drink with a friend.com if you like the show and what we're doing here help us keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks like we've said many times the show is free for you to listen to but not free for us to make so at the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint you can play a big part you can find the link to do this in the show notes of this episode or at a drink with a friend.com and thank you very much in advance for all of you who have already done so you can find me and how to connect with me, especially my newsletter, at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, how about you? Find me at sethhaines.substack.com. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenwriter. I'm Tish Oxenwriter with Seth Haynes, and I'll be back here with you soon. Thanks for listening.